and welcome to the Synapse UCSF Student Voices podcast. In this podcast, UCSF students and trainees chat with people who are making waves in science, journalism, literature, and more. Welcome to the fifth annual Science Writer Coffee Chat, uh, organized by Synapse, UCSF student newspaper. I'm Natalie Whitus, your host today and the current editor-in-chief of Synapse. Today, um, I'd like to welcome Ankur Paliwal. He is an independent journalist who writes about science, inequity, and the LGBTQ plus community. He has a master's in science journalism through Columbia University in New York and is a fellow at the Entrepreneurial Journalism Creators Program at the City University in New York. He focuses on stories of underreported people and places, such as neglected crops uh, and diseases, queer and indigenous communities, and climate change and conflict. And he is building Cribby, a collaborative journalism project focused on the LGBTIQ plus community in South Asia. And in 2016, he co-founded Land Conflict Watch, a data journalism project that maps and analyzes land conflicts in India. Um, so we're really happy to have you here today, Ankur. Great, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Uh, it's uh, early in the morning for me, 5.45 a.m. So I'm definitely having my coffee, but I don't know <laughs> what I, you guys are like. Yeah. First, I want to begin with why and how I became a science journalist. And it's, um, it's never a straight road. It's a very zigzag path. So I come from a very small town in India. It's in the uh, northern part of India in a state called Uttar Pradesh. Uh, it's one of the uh, most poor states uh, in India, both economically and socially speaking. And growing up, I was a very average student. Nothing great. I wasn't like had A's in all the subjects, just very average. But I loved biology. And when I was not studying, I was writing my journal. So I, I knew that I loved writing. I hated mathematics. I still do. I don't understand physics. I don't really understand chemistry. So the point I'm trying to make here is that I am a science journalist today and I don't understand all kinds of science. You don't have to. You don't have to even know any of the science to become a science journalist. All you need to really understand is communications. You should know how to interview a scientist and they're lovely people. They'll help you understand things. You, you, you don't need to know the intricacies of the different subjects. I wanted to become a doctor, but in India, when you have to sort of give competitive exams to take competitive exams to uh, become a doctor, you all should also know, know physics and chemistry, which I didn't. So of course, I couldn't make it through any of the exams. I, I wrote several. So then I ended up with zoology. I knew I loved biology, I loved animals, and so I did my undergrad in zoology. As I finished my undergrad, then I was faced with two choices. I could become, I could go into wildlife sciences because I loved animals and science and uh, become a scientist, or I could do journalism about them. So I wrote both, both kinds of exams in universities here and got through both. That was very difficult again, uh, because then I had to pick. And the way I picked and what I picked was based on that. I thought if I study wildlife sciences, that would mean at that time to me that I'll focus on maybe one animal and I'll just go on and study that animal or that field of wildlife. And that would be my life. 
and that seemed slightly boring to me at that time and I wanted to get out in the world and write and maybe write about several animals several fields and wildlife and broadly about environment so obviously I picked journalism uh, to write, basically write about environment but it's it has been a very zigzag path for me as it is for most journalists it's never straight I went around looking for an environment-related job at publications, magazines, and newspapers in India. Didn't get any. What I did get was a lower court reporting as a trainee journalist. It's so different. It's nothing related to environment. It's nothing related to science, even remotely. It was, it was about covering crime, what's happening, what's coming in the courts, and I did not understand any of it. But I worked through it and did as well as I could. Could I needed some experience in journalism. What it did tell me is how you report, how you make connections, how you understand people, understand complicated cases. The court jargon is very complicated. So just sitting with the lawyers, talking to experts, law researchers. So it just gave me that training of uh, interviewing and unpacking compl complicated things. So I really, I, I really appreciate the kind of training I had in lower courts. But then I did that for a year or so and then found a job in an environment magazine in New Delhi. It's called Down to Earth. It's one of the oldest environment magazines in South Asia, which has been talking about environmental issues in the region. Uh, really a pioneering voice since the early 90s when the environment conversation was just beginning. And it was the, uh, and still is the magazine which talks about inequity in the environmental conversation, how Global South has a right to develop and we cannot take same responsibilities in terms of carbon emissions and why Global North has to do much because they have uh, taken up most of the carbon space in the world. So that was a great training for me. I traveled extensively to across India to uh, report about these environmental issues. And I also covered a little bit of health. But while I was writing these stories, and some of them were really important ones, including unethical clinical trials that were happening in India, a story that I broke, I felt that I was kind of, after a couple of years, I was repeating myself. I was writing, although I was writing about different subjects every time, but my style of writing and my questioning was kind of repetitive. So I needed a break. And that's why I applied to Columbia University to study science journalism. Uh, why science? Because in India, and maybe that's the case with a lot of countries which are not a very, which are still developing or are least developed, is that a lot of environment health reporting tends to focus more on policy because that's what generally the newsrooms are trained for. There is not enough science journalism training. And uh, I didn't really understand how to make science interesting, you know, so that people read it. What is the drama within science? How to unpack complicated things? Are scientists interesting people? You know, I was at that time just coding scientists. You know, I did not know anything interesting about their lives they have motivations they are complicated people they they don't always make right decisions so i did not know any of that because that kind of reporting was not happening in india and i needed to expand my understanding 
So I came here and that was really a life-changing experience for me. I got to learn different ways of doing science journalism. I had brilliant professors. I fell in love with long-form writing, something that really doesn't happen uh, much in India and maybe in several other countries. So it really ex expanded my understanding of uh, science journalism and in different ways uh, you can do it. You could write a profile of a scientist, something I didn't know earlier, you know, how science is such a contested space, you know. I didn't know that, enough of that earlier. A, a lot of science happens in lower courts and high courts. I didn't know enough of that earlier, you know. So it was really a, a learning space for me. But as I sort of worked through what I really wanted to write about in science was the underreported, was really focused on underreported subjects and regions. That also just came from the place I come from and grew in, uh, not having enough focus or not, like the media in India didn't focus enough on underreported subjects. So I traveled, uh, as for my master's thesis in uh, Colombia, I traveled to Ethiopia to do a story on a neglected tropical disease. Uh, why I picked the disease is that in the international or global health community, of course, there's a lot of focus toward uh, big diseases, whether it's cancer, heart diseases, or now COVID. There is some understanding of giving resources to diseases that are not that known. But I, at that time, I was focusing a lot on neglected tropical diseases, which just fall through the cracks. They fall through the cracks because pharmaceutical industry doesn't really focus on them because these diseases really happen to poor people in poor regions and they really can't pay for the drugs that pharmaceutical companies would develop. So there is not enough focus. But even within the sphere of neglected tropical diseases, which, and which does get some attention, are some diseases which are neglected within neglected tropical diseases. And I wanted to focus on that, that why is that happening? And I picked this particular disease because, A, it was happening in a very specific part of Ethiopia or, or some countries in, in Africa. And it wasn't caused by, by a pathogen. It was caused because people in certain parts of Africa, and especially in Ethiopia where I was focusing, didn't want to wear shoes. It was a cultural, for, because of a cultural re region. So for generations, they have been walking on a very, on very toxic soil, which gets into their feet and their feet sort of, if you've heard of a disease called elephantiasis, it's a, it's a version of that, but uh, really not caused by a pathogen. Now, the thing here was that because it's not caused by a pathogen, nobody's really looking into it. What would you develop a drug for? Scientists have been working, some scientists have been working on this, and they, what they found is the solution is very simple, just wearing shoes. It was a behavioral to public health that nobody was kind of looking into. I traveled to a rural part of northern Ethiopia and spent a couple of days with this main character, Mintamir. Absolutely lovely person. I stayed with her. She was beginning to have the disease that you can see that her feet is just beginning to swell. But she had suffered, she was already ostracized by the community, uh, her own community, her husband had left her for another partner. And she was just like really isolated within the community in her own village. And that's what this disease does. In severe cases, the feet really swells a lot. 
and uh, becomes uh, disfigured. Sometimes even worms get in. So it's really a bad looking disease. And really nobody is telling them to wear shoes or they even if people are telling them to wear shoes, they don't want to. So there was a lot of behavioral work that needed to be done. But really nobody was looking into it. So I sort of did that story looking at a broader landscape of why global health community needed to focus on such diseases and why that was not happening. You can see like this man is uh, holding the earlier shoe that he was wearing. He had a big foot, but after he started wearing shoes, now you see his feet are fine. So that was the only intervention that needed to happen. People's feet were really getting disfigured. They were getting ostracized. And a lot of bad things were happening to them, but nobody was paying attention to this problem. And scientists who were trying to work on this, they were not getting enough funding. So I wanted to put the focus on, on the disease. That got me the best thesis award in Colombia. So I'm very, I was very, uh, very happy about that. And then after that, I came back to India. And uh, by this time, I had fallen in love with science journalism the way I understood it then and long form uh, writing. But point here I'm trying to make here is that if you are a freelance science journalist, you can't just live on doing freelance science journalism. You need a side gig. So I got a side gig as a contributing editor with a local publication here, did that three days a week. And so that I can sort of focus on these long form stories because they required extensive attention, extensive research. Sometimes they would take months for me to report and, and put them together. Yeah, so get that side gig. It's really important. And as I reported more and more on science journalism in India, and I traveled a lot to East and West Africa to report these stories. Some I was writing for Indian publications. Some I, some I was writing for publications in the US, like Undark, Scientific American. As I wrote these stories, I found myself gravitating towards stories of inequity. And the story that I did from Ethiopia was in some ways a story of inequity within the global health space and lack of science, uh, lack of diversity in science. And I quickly want to share a story that I recently did. It got a lot of attention, both not, not just in India, but, but really in the global science space and resonated with a lot of communities, underrepresented communities. is a story about how India's caste system limits diversity in science. And I'll sort of just briefly tell you about the caste system, just in case some of you don't understand, is that based on some old Hindu religious texts, there is a system in which certain communities are more privileged, have more resources, and some communities are not. And they have been historically marginalized and oppressed by the privileged communities. And they have been doing very menial jobs like agriculture, labor, cleaning latrines. So the, uh, the privileged communities kind of always kept them oppressed by assigning them these jobs. And historically, these privileged communities, they are sometimes called upper caste in India, have dominated scientific landscape. They were the ones who held big positions. They were the professors and decided what science needed to be done, who could come in, did a lot of gatekeeping. And as I was sort of reporting a lot in science, I would come across students from underprivileged communities sometimes, and I would talk to them, how is your experience like? 
in these academic institutions. And there was one thing that all of them told me, and it was a version of there is nobody like me around me. And that was, has been impacting them a lot in several different ways, not just in uh, how they progress in their career, whether they get to the next step in science or not, and just also about self-worth, you know, feeling happy, feeling included, you know, how you navigate the scientific space, how the, the educational campus is treating, treating you. Are you feeling included or isolated? So I started looking into that and started collecting data. And the data I collected was pretty shocking. What I found is that less than 1% professors were from these underprivileged communities. They are called Dalit and Adivasis. Adivasis are indigenous people in India and some of the really elite science and tech institutes. There were some institutes which did not have even a single Dalit and Adivasi professor. And, and equivalent of that at, at your side would be just like a white school, you know, a white institution where you do not see black people, indigenous people, brown people in those departments, especially at the high, the, the top positions. And that really matters because that's about having role models in your field. So I started looking into why that was happening. And I began from the undergrad level that I, when I collected data, it clearly showed me that at the undergrad level, the students from the marginalized communities were taking more arts courses, not enough science courses. And so I asked around why that was happening. What I learned was it's not that they love arts or humanities courses more, or they are more popular to them. It's just that the places they were coming from in India didn't have enough science schools in the villages close to where they were or the school was far for them and they needed to take transport, which they couldn't afford. Or it would mean that they would go in the morning and come late in the evening and then would not be able to support their parents in agriculture labor or whatever else they, the, the parents needed help with. So they really needed to decide whether they can go that far or stay away from family, what kind of effect that would have on the family, which is why they just ended up choosing humanities. Not that they liked it more. Also, another reason was that or they didn't have enough role models within their families. Even the extended network of relatives didn't have people who could tell them why you should take science or this is what you do when you enter science. So that was a huge problem. Or the science departments were, the fee was higher because it needed practical exams dissections and stuff which which were not in the humanities courses so they just tend to be more expensive that were the barriers at the beginning but even then enough number of students from the marginalized communities were getting in not as much as the privileged community but still not a bad number but the fall started to happen at the phd level just 10% of Dalits and 2% of Adivasis are represented at these really elite institutions. And this is despite having affirmative action policies in India. Some of the students from the communities were using that route and some were not. So even then, we still, had, we still have really bad representation of marginalized communities. So why is that happening? Again, the same thing, this recommendation network, this access to social capital really limits 
their representation in these spaces. One professor, a privileged professor, told me that when there's a PhD season, I get a lot of calls from my own colleagues or relatives. Of course, this was off the record. Or sometimes students approach me on their own and I look at them and that's how sort of I, I decide. And a lot of people from the underprivileged communities just do not know that they can actually write to the professor, that there's nobody recommending them. You know, and when they're coming for the interviews for PhDs, when you are from a privileged community, you just have enough access to resources and people in your family or extended network who can tell you that, look, this is how you appear in an interview. This is how you give a presentation. This is how you make your point. These are very simple things that a lot of people don't have access to just because of the community they're coming from. And even if they made it to the school and got admitted in the PhD program, the biggest struggle that they were having is finding a mentor, a supervisor, who was interested in working with them. So there is this hierarchical bias in the institutions in India, where the professors from the upper caste communities just think that Dalit and Adivasi students won't be good enough, or they will need a lot of their time and resources which they don't want to give. So they actively start discouraging and students start feeling alienated. They don't get enough support and a lot of them drop out. Again, the same thing that there's nobody around me who is like me uh, plays a big role because if they had, those professors would understand their life struggles and would work with them. And one important thing that came out, and this is really about the scientific culture, and it was told to me by privileged community professors that, look, there is no incentive for me to do this. If I am uh, working in an atmosphere where you either publish or perish, and I want my articles getting published in, in the best journals, and for that, I need support, and I need a student who can help me do this. I have very little time. If I'm going to spend it on a student who is going to take more of my time and resources, and it's a longer journey for me, I can't do it. You know, there's really no incentive for me. It's not that if I supervise underprivileged community student, I'll get promotion faster, you know. So, so, so he really talked about those incentives, which I think are important for us to discuss. And uh, there was this question is that is affirmative action then even helping? It's getting the student in, but if they are dropping out because of alienation and not finding enough support, then again, who is at the top? Who, that's why we have these just 1% professors from underprivileged communities. I found massive funding mismatch. Most of the 80% of the fund research funding is going to privileged communities, just very little to underprivileged communities. And all of us know here how critical funding is if you want to advance your research, set up a lab. That's why we don't see people from Adivasi and Dalit community having their own labs or advancing research in India. The same thing I want to say about the LGBTQIA representation. It's also my story. When I was growing up and going to scientific institutions or universities in India, I didn't see people like me there or openly gay or uh, uh, lesbian professors which really made me waste actually a lot of my cognitive energy in just hiding who I was. And I wasn't really paying as much attention as I should be if I didn't thinking about, if I wasn't thinking about these questions. And maybe that was one of the reasons why I was an average student, because I just did not, I was spending a lot of time in just hiding who I really was. I wasn't spending all the 10 hours just studying.
So this is what, you know, over-representation, heteronormative culture does, you know. It doesn't make you feel included. And to feel included, you do a lot of other things, which is time away from what you should really be doing. So our campuses are not empathetic. They are not diverse. And I think same thing goes for institutions in the U.S. and other developed nations. Really, the image of the scientist needs to change. It's still a privileged caste male or an equivalent of that at, at, at your place. So that's the point I want to make about representation here. Why, why we should care about representation? I think this is something you already know, that diverse and inclusive science is a better science. There's already enough data coming out about that. When there are diverse teams, the nature of inquiry changes, the question ex questions expand, you get perspectives that you didn't have, you will look into areas you were not looking into, and the, the products would just benefit a more diverse society. Beyond all of this, our campuses, our labs would just be more empathetic. And that's really important. I've continued to write about underreported subjects. I recently did a story on rare disease in India and why we are not having enough focus and resources on these diseases. So what it really means to live with a rare disease in India and even research it. I spend some of my time editing Asian Scientists, where we uplift voices of scientists from the Asian community in the region. And I sort of spend the rest of my time building Queerbeat and doing my science journalism. So I'm doing a bunch of things now, and it's something that, that I like doing. And the last thing I want to say and leave you with is that it really is the best time to do science journalism. And one of the reasons is that there is a lot of political attack right now on science, which you would have seen during Trump era in the US. Same thing continues to actually happen in, in India. This is a story from New York Times, which really told about how when COVID was really at its peak in India, the Indian government, how it controlled scientific institutions, asked them to change narratives, hide data, not publish data, and how that then affected the messaging and and communities didn't get the help that they needed. And stories like this really sort of put a spotlight on these issues and hold government accountable. Same equivalent of that in the US, a lot of things that have been related to environment and public health and the consequences of, of that, I think you're still having. And just last slightly funny thing, is that because India is a Hindu majoritarian nation and our prime minister is from that community and really pushing the agenda of Hindu majoritarianism and cow is an animal that the religion worships. So a lot of, it's really bizarre. A lot of funding is going to scientific institutions where the government is telling them to study cow. Because in a religious text, cow is just made into this animal which has answers to everything. It can cure all diseases. It can make you a nice person, a kind person. I mean, just it's just extremely bizarre. And then scientists are marching on the streets to say, like, we need funds for basic science, not for cow dunk. So, I mean, all of this is what science journalists also have to do. So it's, it's an exciting time to be in, in science. That, that, that's all from me. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, does anyone have uh, any questions? I do. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I Go ahead, Sandy. Crazy light. Um, so I was wondering um, 
it's obviously, I think, very satisfying to report on something that has been like underreported and not talked about. Um, but there's obviously the risk that uh, people will read it and not care, or like policymakers just won't give it the time of day. Um, I'm wondering either like how you judge success of a story that you bring, or like if that's something you think about, if yeah, like I guess how do you judge like success of a story beyond like bringing right. the story out to the world? Right, right. I think that that's a really important question and something I think about a lot or, and thought about a lot when I was moving toward underreported, covering more underreported stories. I mean, it's really a choice that you have to make what kind of stories you want to put out. And as far as making people care about these stories is 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 really how you report how you write, how you make the characters more uh, relatable. So I think you can do a lot of care-related work in your writing and reporting. But as for uh, whether enough people are reading it or not, you really can't control it. But what you're doing is that you're building a historical record. And I think that historical record is extremely important because if two years later or five years later, somebody wants to study that disease or look into that underreported problem, they would have a resource to go to or a history to understand. Uh, and then they would be able to then advance the narrative. If we, do, if we have not built that history, there's nothing to stand on. Reporting underreported stories and covering underreported regions is really a service that we do and and for me it's more important than covering the common stuff that a lot of people would anyway cover so it's a call it's a personal call that you have to do and and i can't emphasize more the importance of building historical records thank you cool so we have another question from janice janice would you like to ask it yourself or oh yeah thanks okay yes yeah, so i thought that was a great talk so i was curious how do you even find these underreported people to report on in the first place because if nobody has reported you can't find them on the internet right you talk to scientists you first find scientists you work with non-profit organizations there are many who have been trying to understand underreported communities and subjects a lot of them is not on the internet. So you really have to go to the nonprofits. You have to seek out scientists who are working on these diseases or underreported subjects. Like I'll give you an example from, from the Ethiopia story, how I found that story. I, what I knew is that I wanted to write about neglected tropical diseases and I started reaching out to scientists and then I, then I found one expert and I just asked him that, Within this basket of neglected tropical diseases, which one do you think is e even more neglected? Give me three. And then I studied those three and then found this particular disease. So, so you just have to do that work of finding people who are working on these issues because there, there are those people. Oh, thank you. And so the other question I had was, how do you report things truthfully, but in an easy to understand way that the audience can understand? Because probably like within that same story, there was probably a lot of nuances that they didn't cover, like maybe treatment was working or not working, aside from just a shoe intervention. And how do you cover it such that people can understand, but at the same time, you don't lose the message of the signs? Right, right. I think that's where the reporting uh, com comes in you make the narrative more empathetic and relatable and also try and unpack 
the complicated science it has and you work with scientists to understand it i mean it's really the same journalism formula that you apply in any story you really trying to understand your characters their motivations the ca- the motivations of the scientists because scientists have already done enough work about understanding that diseases those diseases or the complexities or the things that we don't or they don't understand all of that just comes from reporting and as for writing do the best you can do work with great editors who will help you shape the stories i can't emphasize more the importance of working with uh, brilliant editors i've learned a lot from them yeah so it's it's a sort of like a balancing act between having an empathetic character driven narrative and explaining science Yeah, thank you. Does anyone else have any questions? I was curious to know if you got any backlash about, you know, critiquing the caste system. Oh, a lot. <laughs> it 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 always happens. I mean, I've been repeating I've been reporting about caste system a lot even before the nature report and it always comes from the privileged communities. It's really bizarre. I mean, they, even in this day and age where there's a lot of conversation about caste, people still comment on the stories saying that they don't deserve to be here. They don't understand the subjects. It's too much of, uh, we already have affirmative action policies. What else do we need? And sometimes when I give talks in science and tech institutes in India, the campuses are still very contested. The students who are from privileged communities still ask me, that why do we need affirmative action policies it's taking away seats we are working hard we are working harder but just because of affirmative affirmative action somebody who's less deserving is coming into our campuses so it's still a very contested space i do respond to those kind of questions in a way that i help them make understand history why do we have it in the first place why even this doesn't help but sometimes i don't respond if it's just a bizarre uh, question coming from a space of disrespect to the communities or to or to my journalism i don't respond uh so uh i have a question about um i i feel like a lot of times um uh not not like necessarily recently but like um uh, when i was in college i was one thing i was told about uh journalism is that it's important for journalists to like stay apolitical um and um I am also a member of the LGBT community uh which means that I find it quite difficult to stay a political because my identity is political. Um so uh I was wondering, you know, do you have any advice for dealing with that like particular challenge? Right. I don't think journalists can be a political. I mean, if that really doesn't happen, mm-hmm. you if you're reporting on facts, if you're reporting on uh, how people work their life histories and lived experiences on oppression you can't really be a, a political so as a journalist you are always trying to bring in true voices and you're also trying to build an a public narrative help build a public narrative which would then help people have more conversations about inequity oppression fairness uh, and inclusivity in society so i feel like you as a reporter you're just just bringing in facts and experiences that will help us do our role in a better way help build better public conversations i think that's really critical we are all political i mean whether yeah. we uh, acknowledge it or not yeah 
Thank you. Is there anything from anyone else? If not, I have I have one last thing to say uh, to folks. Um, so I just want to remind everyone that the Synapse as uh, annual storytelling contest is coming up. I'm sorry, I have to move the cat. Uh, <laughs> Synapse's annual storytelling contest is coming up. Um, so you can submit an unlimited number of entries uh, from May through June in four different categories, nonfiction writing, fiction writing, poetry, and photography. Um, and each of those four categories has prizes. Um, uh, the first prize is $250. Every non-winning entry that we publish receives a $25 gift card. So now is a good time to start working on thinking about what you'd like to submit because um, you will see your work published and you might get a prize. Um, and so I just want to thank you again, um, Ankur, for coming uh, and speaking with us. Uh, it was great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I hope I was useful. <laughs> this has been the Synapse Podcast, recorded in beautiful San Francisco, California. Be sure to tune in again for future discussions with scientists, healthcare providers, educators, writers, and more. Thanks for listening.